Once upon a time, at the northwestern edge of a crumbling civilization, in a corrupt town called Terminal City, the sky was falling. Terminal City Ricochet. It's about the world we live in and how it will end if we don't change the channel now. Trust me! Trust me! Elect me! Ross Glimmer! Mayor Ross Glimmer is the tabloid politician, a man who worships in the church of television. He's got his own talk show, a private police force, and an obsession. He wants everyone to love him, even if it kills them. Paper boy at the corner of 3rd and Liddy Street. He's getting his papers. Pick him up. You're in a lot of trouble. I'm just standing here. Alex, you don't have a job anymore. You're a terrorist now. <laughs> Ross's media experts are through. Little children are going to be seeing images of you in their nightmares for years to come. Wake up! The sky is falling and we are on the ground! Let's do something about it before it's too late! Terminal City Ricochet. Welcome to the 1990s. It's scary. It's funny. It cuts straight to the rotten core of the coming decade. One Nation! Under God! Has turned into One Nation under the influence of one drug. Radio Drome. The sky is falling and we are on the ground! I am Josh Hadley and welcome to Radio Drome. With me, as always, is Peter the Laughing Hyena. <laughs> All right. And with me, as always, is Cecil T. Robot having weird nom flashbacks from burritos. I agree with the thing that you said. And joining us this week, due to the sp- to the special topic, special in quotes, Charlie McMullen is joining us. Hey, everybody. Uh, I would like to kick the show off with uh, telling Peter that I listened to that laugh and was looking at your Skype profile picture, which is the Joker and Batgirl. Wonderful way to start the show. I'm going to do that every time now. <laughs> See, he just did it right there. Charlie, since you're our special guest, and you do the Adam and Eve promo for us, and Cecil has gimped it up every time, except when he's read off of a cheat sheet, which doesn't count. I did it right, like, a month ago. With okay. a little prompting. No, I did it right without. But anyway, but you yeah, Charlie, do it, because I don't feel like doing it. Well, he's had me do this on What the Fuck a couple of times, and I have gotten it right zero times out of all, all the times he's tried. 
<laughs> so uh, let's see here. If you go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME, thought that was going to trip me up. It did not. Use the promo code DROME and you will get free shipping within Canada's Mexico. You will get a mystery gift, which uh, I think, I mean, we've been around long enough. It's some kind of lube as well it should be. But you'll also get six bonus DVDs. Am I right about that? So far, you're doing good. Okay. Cecil, what am I leaving out here? Um, a gift for him and a gift for her. A gift for her. Um, free shipping. He already said the, that. Uh, he, he, uh, that, oh. that was the Canada's Mexico joke. See, oh, okay. we in America are Peter or Mexico to where Peter is. <laughs> Use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, tonight, we have a very special guest that's not Charlie. Later on in the show... You'll be hearing an interview I did with Jello Biafra of the, the, the Dead Kennedys, Lard, Guantanamo School of Medicine, DOA, innumerable bands. But we're going to be talking about not his music so much as his acting. When a musician moves into acting, sometimes it turns out fine, sometimes it doesn't. What do you think is the best and worst musician-turned-actor experience that you've witnessed? start with the worst and uh, I didn't actually see it but when I heard about uh, a Katy Perry movie actually coming out that was that's probably the worst that deeply hurt my soul and and I'm the not best sure if that is... counts because it's a concert film so nah. I meant like acting like in a movie or is something. it is it though I, I thought it was like a movie about her I don't know I guess like the worst is is when you have like God, Eminem was terrible. My favorite, were, and uh, to me, my favorite would be like anytime Henry Rollins is in something because he's just so, just goes purposely over the top and it's fantastic. Like uh, Johnny Mnemonic comes to mind. Or he, him as a neo-Nazi enforcer on yes, Sons of Anarchy. Absolutely. He's, he's always awesome. He's a self-admitted horrible actor, but there's something about him that's just, I guess it's that, that self-awareness that he knows he's bad and he's going as just over the top as possible and chewing so much scenery. Like what's, what's that one? Like Bad Boys uh, wrong, wrong, wrong turn Two would have been a yes. horrible, unwatchable film. If not for Henry Rollins playing the, uh, the war vet that has the reality show, he makes that movie so ridiculously watchable. Cause he's just so fantastically over the top. But Henry Rollins is always awesome. Uh, the worst musician turned actor. Uh, I'm disappointed in all three of you for, Waiting until it got around to me to bring it up, but Britney Spears, holy sh! I'm actually going to argue there's one worse, Prince. Oh, you shut Prince. up about Purple Rain. No, <laughs> no, Prince. <laughs> Prince was on top of the world. He was not. I don't even consider that acting. He was just being Prince in a different form. <laughs> Damon Wayans' impersonation of him in Last Boy Scout was a better performance. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Damon Wayans is a close second, but I like uh, Dave Chappelle's Prince. He does the best one. But what what would be your pick for the the best actor or uh, musician turned actor? Tom Waits. Tom yeah. Waits. I he is enjoyable in everything he's in. Like he was the best part of Mystery Men. Like he was awesome in that movie. He was the best part of like Domino, Seven Psychopaths. I mean he he doesn't really mix up the roles he takes, but he's fucking good at it. Let me tell you about a hooker I met in a bar one night. Right. <laughs> I mean, Seven Psychopaths, that was genuine acting. That mm. was not even, that was not good for a musician. That was just good acting. Uh, for, for best, it's kind of, this one, it's, it's a little, he, he was, uh, I'm not sure which one he did first, but he does do both. Jared Leto, I think, is just fucking awesome. I mean, yeah. he was great in Fight Club. And I'm really excited about seeing him in Suicide Squad. And actually, he's one of the, 
musicians that goes to acting, there are a lot of actors that kind of still do music. And a lot of times the music sucks. But I actually really like 30 Seconds to Mars. So I think that he kind of does both really well. So that's like my pick for the best. I also am kind of fond of uh, Marky Mark. You know, he's good, but I think I like Jared Leto better. As far as worst, I've only ever seen him in one movie. I don't know if he's done more, but Ja Rule in Half Past Dead was so bad. <laughs> like every time he's on screen, he's doing that pouty he pouts his lips and he rubs his chin and he does that looks up to the camera it's i should do a freaking like clip like just a, a thing where it's just a, a whole bunch of super cuts of him doing that same face over and over and over again what are you talking about scratch his chin oh, smiles oh, so Cecil. bad cecil it's i I that's it that's it I'm actually surpri- I'm actually surprised none of you I'm actually surprised none of you said what are arguably two of the most obvious and that would be Ice Tea or Meatloaf I actually mm. think both of them Ice Tea started out rough his early when he was in movies his early years were kind of rough but he, oh, no, New he, Jack City was pretty awesome he was good yeah, in that and, uh, I'm talking about one? like I'm not talking New Jack City I said his he early was a- years like breaking and stuff. Oh, but yeah, but but breaking like it it fit with breaking, and all he really he was just the DJ for that, you know. And still, he's acting. He in was it, the Big and, Lebowski of breaking, like he was the man for his time and place. <laughs> and then and then Meatloaf, he's proven to be a really good actor, honestly. And I'm not even just talking Fight Club. You look mm-hmm. at some of the TV work he's done and some of the other movies he's been in. He's actually quite good at acting. Formula Fifty One, yeah, Black Dog. <laughs> yeah, where's the the truck driver? Come on! Black Dog, <laughs> okay. he, was, he was good in Black Dog. Nothing was good in Black Dog. Oh, <laughs> shut up. And, like, I, I don't want to be too offensive at the top of the show, but I, I thought Patrick Swayze was dead until Black Dog came out. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair, really. Wasn't oh, Randy Travis like... in that, too? Yes, he was. <laughs> he had the time of his life. <laughs> <laughs> Usually when musician goes to a movie or to tv the odds are it's usually nothing more than like a publicity stunt they want the name and not the person because being a musician and a performer is not the same as performing in a movie with with like when i talk to jello biafra i think that's a little less true with jello because i think he if you look at like the early dead kennedy's performances he's very theatrical and he's very over the Mm -hmm. top anyway so he's almost playing a character on stage in, in a mo- in a movie like Terminal City Ricochet, where he's playing absolutely the opposite of what his true nature is. He is essentially playing. What if Carl Rove were in a cyberpunk world? <laughs> and he does a really convincing job, doesn't he? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. Among uh, everything else in the movie, of course, it was a lot of fun. But he really was great as uh, as the villain in the film and uh, definitely different from what you would see him doing uh, up on stage uh, which is um it was kind of fresh uh, to see that just cuz i it was my first time seeing the movie and as somebody that's uh, listened to the the dead kennedys and seen and seen them perform uh, i haven't seen them live actually but you know videos yeah it was it was really cool seeing him uh, seeing him so different but but doing it well like um he was doing something different and actually doing a really good job of it so yeah, he was, he was cool. He was really good in that. I like I I found it really easy to separate Jello the musician 
from Jello the actor. Like he didn't he didn't have like he didn't sing in the movie. Like he didn't have to incorporate like a lot of like hey I'm this guy type of shit. You know what I mean? Let's talk about Terminal City Ricochet a little bit because this is a relatively obscure movie put out by Alternative Tentacles, Jello Biafra's record label. He actually re- released this movie on DVD. This movie was made in Canada in 1989 and came out in 1990. Problem is it never even got a VHS release. This thing played on some Canadian pay cable stations and then was syndicated in America for about a month on HBO and a couple of small channels, and then it just kind of went away. And then until Jell-O released it, nobody has really seen this. And you can kind of tell that Master Print was not kept in the best condition. There's a major tape hit on the DVD near the beginning of the film to the point where you could tell this was probably the best master they could find. I remember, obviously, I didn't see Terminal City Ricochet back in that era, but I remember reading about it in maybe Film Threat or Film Comment or something. I remember reading about it and that Joe Biafra of the Dead Kennedys is in this, and then I just forgot about it until I saw the DVD. It's a really good movie. Jello Biafra says that he thought the movie, initially it was brought to him as a dark vision of the future as a sort of warning about what America and Canada have to stay away from. And he said in 1989, no, this is America right now. It's all about politics (laughs) ruling through television, politics ruling and manipulating the media, and how everything you see on television is a lie. I mean, and in reality, the way I look at it is, while the film is about television and its ability to manipulate the masses, I think you could very well argue today that if you supplement the internet for television, it's the exact same message. It sounds uh, it sounds spot on. I mean, I, I've seen, uh, well, more listened to a ton of uh, Jello's uh, spoken word stuff, so I know he's always got a really good head on his shoulders as far as taking uh, the piss out of politics, taking the piss out of television, entertainment, basically taking the piss out of everybody because he's somebody who... You would never want to get into a battle of wits against him. He will just nuke you from orbit. Uh, so <laughs> I can only imagine how uh, forward-thinking the uh, satire was in this movie. And I am bummed I didn't see it. I, it was a weird week. That, that movie that came out back then just keeps getting more and more accurate in 2015. Like I think the way we feel about Terminal Ricochet City now is the way our kids are going to feel about idiocracy in, in 15 years. Oh, God, please don't say that. Like, you want me to worry, put toilet Brayton. water on food, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> How come I never seen no plants growing out of no toilet? It's huh? got what plants it's crave. It's got electrolytes. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 think, I think the movie definitely holds up. I don't know. Like, because I saw this movie when I was very young for the first time. Uh, it was, I, like, I don't remember specifically, but I think it was for that brief period where it was licensed by HBO. I remember seeing that and uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil on the same night. Like, I don't know why the fuck HBO would run those two movies back to back, but I saw <laughs> saw those on the same night, and they both kind of give me the same feeling. Like, they're comedies. Overall, they're, they're pretty much comedies, but comedy can get, like, really savage. And the funnier it is, the more horrifying the, the violence is. Oh, th- and... there's, a scene in, there's a scene in Terminal City Ricochet where a political dissident has his balls cut off and then the presidential oh, yeah. candidate cooks them on television as a delicacy <laughs> and the audience doesn't know what this... Oh, I mean, I think, I think the host is like, wow, that smells fantastic. And he's like, you'll never know what hits you. 
Yeah, it was such it was such an aggressive humor that I that that is the reason I love both of those movies still to this day at the age of thirty five. Like I really love that genre, and I can't really think of any more. Like maybe Ice Pirates. Like I, 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 I Ice put... Pirates, Network, Videodrome. Those are all movies that are more apt today. And yes, Ice Pirates. That movie is a hilarious satire. If yeah. you if you pay attention to it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of Ice Pirates as just really creepy and really aggressive humor that enhances both yeah. aspects. Like, yeah. I love movies like that. I noticed uh, just, just watching it. I mean, it is. It's it's played for humor, for sure. And it's uh, it's got, like, a, a stylized kind of vibe to it. And it's got the whole punk culture sewn into it with the, with the music and, and the way uh, the sort of rebellious characters are dressing. But really, like if you look at the way um, the police are acting in the film and in a, in a very... Uh, I'm just standing here! Yeah, it really it reminds you a lot of the stuff that you're seeing nowadays with uh, not just the, the police force, but with, with politics. It, it's, uh, it's another movie where it, it kind of made me think that like this really a lot more accurately represents the future than a lot of the more uh, you know uh, lighthearted and uh, hopeful films did. Um, whereas, which is kind of depressing to think that movies like this predicted the future and movies like it made me think of RoboCop as well, because that one also just in the way the, the economies and the shitter like it and corporations taking over and everything like that was spot on too. So it's, uh, it's both awesome uh, to see just how relevant it is and depressing at the same time, because fuck you for predicting a horrible future. Captain bring down. <laughs> Do you think movies like Idiocracy, Terminal City, Ricochet, Videodrome, Network, and, and the like, is this the kind of thing that ages with time, or is it just, these movies should have been looked at as warnings, not how-tos, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Um, I also think that uh, it, it's it's great that they they age so well. Uh, the Every now and then you'll get something where, uh, the technology is a little behind. You know, maybe uh, somebody has one of those giant cell phones from like the 80s Video or something. Videodrome is about beta tapes. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's about beta tapes and you've got the big CRT televisions. You kind of have to look at it from the perspective of, well, this is what was available at the time. However, plot and everything, the story is timeless. If anything, you know, uh, like Mad Max, or not Mad Max, uh, like Max Headroom, you know, the stories and still stuff that they've uh, talked about on the show is coming true. I mean, there, there's like a, an ongoing list of all the things that have come to fruition since the show was off the air. And the show's been off the air for decades now. It, it, it's just, uh, it's cool that uh, somebody has something that's so forward-thinking. But unfortunately, it doesn't, uh, it, it just doesn't always hit at the time. Well, Jello Biafra thinks that everyone before every election season, season should be forced to watch Terminal City Ricochet. Do you think that's <laughs> overselling its message a little bit, or do you think that that's right on? That's right on. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, politicians should be forced to watch it. And it should be it should, it should be watched as a message not not to do this. You see everything that's going on in this movie? Do the opposite of that. Yeah, I think so. I think during the primaries would be the best time to watch it when every candidate is on their absolute best behavior. Like, the movie shows politicians the way they would act all the time if they could. Ross Glimmer is an id run amok. All right, I sat down and talked to Jello Biafra. And now, this is going to go into a couple of different places because trying to keep Jello on subject is like herding cats. 
Good luck with it. <laughs> and yes, it's Jello Biafra, so does spout off about Hillary a, a little bit in some politics, but I agree with the things he was saying, so I didn't stop him. <laughs> so here's Jello Biafra, and then we'll be back. Can't be any more abrasive than Hardfisher. So first I want to say thank you very much for taking the time for this. How did you get into acting? Was it because you were such a huge movie fan that when the opportunity came about, you jumped on it? Or was this something you always wanted to do while you were doing the music stuff? I did acting before I did music, actually. Granted, it was local stuff when I was growing up in Boulder, Colorado, in the high school and the summer repertory theater troupe, but we did have tough directors and do real plays, you know, not um, Santa Claus meets the werewolf on prom night or stuff like that. We did the real stuff. So I, I learned a lot from that. And I guess I'd always had that ambition in a way because right when other kids were starting to think they wanted to be like a cop or a fireman or a baseball player or a nurse when they grew up, Batman was on TV, and I thought those villains were much more interesting role models. I wanted to grow up to be the Riddler or the Penguin. I thought they were really cool. I guess I realized fairly quickly the only way that could ever happen if it would be if I portrayed them. So I, I got some good ones. I played Scrooge in high school and did uh, the Boris Karloff role in Arsenic and Old Lace and another dramatic one he did the original of and a play called The Lark, which is the other really heavy-duty play about Joan of Arc besides St. Joan. So, I, I mean, there was a little bit of movie stuff going on, but it was really demented silence films. So my friend John Greenway, who co-wrote the original lyrics California Uber Alice would make, like Pack of the Invisible Rednecks. I don't think I was, I wasn't in that one, but I was in the follow-up Crime in the Streets and Trout Madness and others. You mentioned the old 60s Batman show. I'm going to guess, based on the song Plants Eat Their Master or Pets Eat Their Masters, you were a fan of the old Munsters, too, correct? Never saw it. Seen it once in my entire life. I mean, when I was a kid, it never occurred to me that I could look in such a thing as a TV guide and there would be other programs besides what my parents wanted to watch. And they did balance it out and turn on some stuff for the kids, too. And, you know, I, I think my father in particular got a kick out of that Batman show. That was kind of a no-brainer. The, the other interesting one was there was a primetime rock and roll show, even earlier, called Hullabaloo. And it, and we started watching that right when I started hearing rock and roll on the radio. And, you know, once I got into that, there was no stopping me. I actually experienced the 60s garage era when those bands were current, when local big AM radio stations still played local bands on the air. And Hullabaloo would have on, uh, you know, Eric Brewer and the Animals, Paul Revere and the Raiders. I think they had the Beatles on, and the Stones on one each, but usually slightly below that. Mitch Ryder was on there, all kinds of people. Those varieties, you got soul groups and um, crooners and other things, and, you know, the gamut the of what was on pop radio at the time, but there were always two or three kick-ass bands, and I took note of that, too, because I didn't come up with a riff to, of, to Pet Peter Master till God, I don't know, not that long after Dead Kennedys broke up. I just never got a chance to use it till later. But I got all kinds of shit like that. I mean, when I when I found out about those instrumentals and took them seriously and got into them in kind of the first year or two that Dead Kennedys was going, 
you know, hardly any of my peers were paying attention to that stuff at all. It was kind of my private little domain for ideas, but I quickly grew to the point where I had good enough licks on my own. I didn't have to swipe them directly from the monsters or anything else. How do you usually get the roles? Is it something you pursue a project you hear about, or are you pursued? It, I'm usually pursued. I mean, if I lived in L.A. and had an agent and put a lot more time into it, I would probably get a lot better stuff. But let's face it, I ain't no Sean Penn. So when something really cool and hopefully demented comes my way, then, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm game. Somewhat bigger budget and other times that it's real guerrilla filmmaking where, where it's basically improvised, which sometimes can be the most fun. That said, what do you normally look for? Something where you're playing an over-the-top villain, like you played a porn director multiple times and whatnot, or something that's... I thought I didn't, I, thought I only played a porn director once. The, the character in I, I Love You, I'm the Porn Queen, kind of a porn producer, kind oh, of a... Oh, right. No, that, that, that's the... That's more of the, that, the, yeah, I guess that would be, uh, no, 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 the, 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 the Sid character is like a booking agent for strippers and porn models. Do you like that more or something like Terminal City Ricochet where you're playing, even though the character is straight, he's kind of a satire, do you like playing that kind of a character better? Well, the, the more over the top it is, the more fun it is for me. I mean, I'm not exactly male lead material or whatever, but Bruce Cottle in Terminal City Ricochet was kind of like the, the mayor slash dictator of Terminal City's Carl Rove, Oliver North, G. Gordon Liddy, and NSA agent all rolled into one. So I was the hatchet man. That was, that was a difficult one to try and get anything out of because I, I wore too many hats. For one thing, I was trying to play the role, wangle the soundtrack rights for, of the movies for Alternative Tentacles, my label, and come up with songs for the movie all at the same time. So I didn't quite get to immerse myself as much in uh, Bruce Cottle as I could have. Plus, a lot of my scenes were with Peter Breck, who plays Ross Glimmer, the great uh, dictator, emperor, whatever, of this one of the last livable cities on Earth. It was shot in Vancouver, which was originally named Terminal City, ironically. And Breck was, you look at that movie now, and Breck is obviously having the time of his life playing such a sleazeball American politicians. I heard him in an interview say he was kind of kind of thinking of Joe McCarthy and that crew when he played him. But you look at Ross Glimmer, his character now, it really is Rick Perry. Here I was with a lot of scenes with a master actor who even knew exactly where to plant his eyes in every scene and had total control over his face. He just knew what to do. He was very helpful, though, in breaking down scenes and the like. And I was trying to conjure up all the old Stanislavski stuff I'd learned as a, in my teenage acting years to try and get to that character. I mean, for one thing, uh, they had me in, the, in an apartment hotel where there was a bunch of other high-rise apartment buildings all going down this hill into one of the inlets or estuaries you have in Vancouver. I don't think it was Gerard Inlet. I think it was a different one. But anyway, at dusk, there'd be all these other apartment buildings with people who had all their lights on and hadn't closed their curtains yet. So, you know, I, I got to, I, I, I got to play, you know, I got to play spook and just check all of them out. Eventually I just even tried masturbating as Bruce Cottle to see what would happen and quickly realized I should slip on my handy, uh, 
Walkman recorder and just started, uh, you know, recording whatever came into my head before I squirted and it was time to do something, clean up and do something else. And that eventually I transcribed that and then realized, hey, this would make a great song for the album I'm making with No Means No, an album that would not exist unless I was teamed up to do a song with them for the Terminal City Ricochet movie. Same situation with DOA. I was supposed to do one song a piece with each. And we started coming up with all these other songs, and I brought more of mine that had never been recorded in, and they resulted in two albums I'm very proud of to this day. And the song on uh, the one I did, album I did with No Means No, which is titled The Sky Is Falling and I Want My Mommy. That's the album title, and the song is Bruce's Diary. That's Bruce in question. It connects back to Eternal City Ricochet, as does the Falling Space Junk song, which there's space junk falling from time to time in the movie which ironically was inspired by a spoken word piece I'd done called Why I'm Glad Space Shuttle Blew Up. There was all this cross-pollination going on. The producer was the same guy who put Dead Kennedys on years earlier as an events coordinator at the University of British Columbia. Well, then, with something like Terminal City Ricochet, where you're playing a character that's really almost a diametric exact opposite, it's your mirror evil transporter duplicate, is that more fun than playing a character like on Portlandia where you were essentially playing yourself? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, I got to go over the top on Portlandia, too. That was almost all improv. They gave me lines to learn. I dutifully learned them. And then the director told me right after we sure shot take one of the scene with the Krusty Punks on the street, oh, yeah, by the way, Terry and Fred haven't learned any of their lines, so just go with it. <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. So, uh, a lot of the things I did to annoy the yuppies passing by, like faking epileptic seizures and rolling around screaming on the sidewalk, didn't actually make the final cut, unfortunately. I don't know if that's the same situation with all actors where some of the coolest shit they do never get in. But, you know, that's, that's kind of the way it goes sometimes. I, yeah, I guess, uh, Bruce Connell, the, uh, you know, the, the, the hatchet man for the dictator would be kind of a polar opposite, definitely a villain figure for somebody who's fascinated with evil and villains and all. But I suppose any actor has to tap into a little bit of themselves, too. It's like, what do I actually, whether I like it or not, have in common with this guy? You know, it's not as though I wasn't hard while masturbating as this character. It was just a really interesting adventure. Some of that came in again when I played this customs officer in another Canadian movie called Highway 61. And the more I was trying to, you know, bring 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 this guy to life, pacing around before they uh, they, they shot the scene, I thought, you know, this job is the perfect job for certain kinds of curves and fetishes because you get to go through everybody's luggage and play with their lingerie, see if there's any sex toys or magazines or other things, or maybe there's even some shoes, <laughs> and put that back into song. And a song I did years later with the Melvins called The Lighter Side of Global Terrorism about one of these TSA agents who took the job solely for the purpose of perv action getting to grope and snoop and everything else. I mean, that's, that's, it, it occurred to me that a lot of people who do those jobs, they're kind of into that kind of shit. <laughs> they gotta be. Same way, you know, you know, they, they, you know, now it's obvious that all over the world that people went into the priesthood and the Catholic Church in part for the purpose of going after younger boys. 
the fact that this, is, this stuff has been going on all over the world for who knows how many years or even centuries, you know, it was endemic. You know, it's the same with, you know, when they're, when, after uh, Freddie Gray was murdered by the police in Baltimore, like so many others were finally hitting the news, which is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, they're saying, oh, what do we do about these rogue police officers? And I'm thinking, hey, wait a minute. The reason this keeps happening is that those aren't rogue police officers. Those are normal police officers. They recruit people who are into that. I mean, there was I, I briefly knew a guy who was an LAPD cop, and they said, yeah, that they do recruit out of gang. doesn't have a record, but they're, they're kind of going into the so-called thug life. You say, hey. Here's how you can live the thug life but get away with it. Become a cop. Oh, okay. All Baltimore and all Hillary all the time. I mean, what does it say about the Hillary monster that she didn't put a stop to the ready for Hillary stuff that was clouding over the 2014 election? She could have been out there stumping for candidates to try and get McConnell and Boehner out of power in the House and the Senate. Instead, it's all me, 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 me. The Onion actually had the funniest and most telling thing I've ever seen about the Hillary campaign. It was simply a caption of her that said, don't you people f*** this up for me. <laughs> She's doing the same thing she did the last time, saying, oh, now we're going to have a conversation. And that was the regal tone of the Hillary mailings I was getting in 2007 against my will. I'm not even a registered Democrat. I'm a Green. But they keep hounding me with all this stuff. You know, the entire small part of a forest has been wasted on me alone with all their mailings. But anyway, but again, it's all we're going to have a conversation. And this is what we're going to talk about. And she didn't mention Iraq at all. And this was 2007. It, it left the door wide open for somebody who wasn't really quite ready for prime time to drive a truck through. And that's exactly what the Obama people did. Although, ironically, you know, she, Hillary was more honest in 08 about what a corporate snake she was, and this was all she was going to do, and it was mostly going to be Bushness as usual. Well, Obama was all hope and change, but then did Bushness as usual in a lot of Hillary's actual proposed policies anyway. Your biggest and most recognizable role, I think, to the mainstream would be what's essentially a walk-on, but arguably the most memorable scene in tape heads. Since you said you ad-libbed this stuff in Portlandia, please tell me that the, that the Jello Biafra line was an ad-lib and not already in the script. It was an ad-lib and they kept it. You know, I thought that was pretty cool because never been in, you know, in a Hollywood movie before. And luckily, uh, Tim Robbins and John Cusack, the lead actors who were not nearly as well-known then as they are now, they were very friendly, very helpful. You know, this is what's going to happen now. This is what we need to do here. And I ran it by them. They were like, yeah, do it. Just so you can always retake. Just do it. So I did. Ironically, I was wearing the same suit as the FBI agent when I bust their two characters for trafficking in porn that I wore at my own obscenity trial. I brought it down just in case the costume department suit didn't fit right, and sure enough, it didn't. I came prepared. Speaking of the obscenity trial, I, I read this years ago, so it obviously died. I heard somebody was trying to make a movie out of the obscenity trial. There were two different people after me for that. One of them, believe it or not, was Gene Simmons. One conversation with him, and it became clear that I was going to have very little, if any, say or artistic control in my own story if he was in charge. So I kind of 
let that one go. And then there was a woman who either was or had recently at that time been Jane Fonda's assistant who wanted to make it from a uh, from a different point of view, but uh, that never quite got off the ground either. Well, because I remember when Dee Snyder played himself in the Warning Parental Advisory movie about about the Senate subcommittee hearings from the PMRC. Were you ever, even well, Gene, while talking to Gene Simmons, were you going to play you? I had never even heard about that movie. It was a VH1 TV movie from 99 or 2000. It's relatively accurate, and Tw- D. Snyder plays himself as D. Snyder of Twisted Sister in it. Since D. Snyder played himself in a, in a movie like that, would they have cast you as you? You know, they went after Dead Kennedys right after the hearing. And, of course, the reason I fought the obscenity charge was I realized that I was Tipper's pigeon, and the prosecuting attorney came right out and said that they'd chosen me to go after because he said, he said we think it's a cost-effective way of sending a message. In other words, we didn't go after Dee Snyder or the bigger targets like Prince or Ozzy Osbourne or Judas Priest or Motley Crue because we figured this guy didn't have any money to spend himself. Well, but then you ended up winning, so screw them. Well, not quite. It wasn't. I wasn't acquitted. It was a hung jury, and the prosecutor filed a motion immediately for a new trial, and the judge denied it and dismissed the charges at that point. But then the real damage was done in the marketplace because for years after that, everything with Dead Kennedy's name on it or my name in it or on it, or in many cases, Alternative Tentacles Records name on it, was kicked out of all these chain stores. Walmart that won't stock any release that has a tipper sticker on it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it again, because people keep finger-pointing at Ralph Nader for costing Al Gore the 2000 election against Clown Prince W. And there's a, any number of reasons that's not true, including the fact he didn't really fight the thing at the end very hard or very effectively, even though he'd been presented with evidence that the computers had all been doctored and stuff and didn't even use it. You know, you can point your finger at Ralph Nader all you want for that election, but he didn't do nearly as much to cost Al Gore votes as Tipper Gore did. Because, if you recall from that election, where was the youth support for Al Gore? There was even way more youth support and even actual enthusiasm for John Kerry than there was for Al Gore. And I think Tipper's hate campaign against our music and freedom of speech, and keep in mind after the Senate hearing, they played the race card later, too, when they went after NWA and Public Enemy and IC and hip-hop in general. They had an even juicier target to tap into. People hadn't forgotten that. I mean, even years after that, all I had to do was mention Tipper Gore's name in one of my spoken word shows where all these people would boo and hit. And granted, you know, it's my audience still. That long after the fact, she cost him the 2000 election. Oh, well, look at this first lady you're going to get. She was ahead of her time. She's all down with family values. Remember how she cleaned up music? And a lot of voters across the board did. And they either voted for Ralph Nader or they didn't vote for anybody. In 2000, I was 25. I remember what Tipper did to all the music I listened to. And I was like, no, I'm not getting her into the White House. No, I voted for Nader in 2000. I mean, she also had a little bit of a mental health background. I was on one of the boards of, um, uh, I don't know, the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, or one of the other ones. But she, uh, 
she proposed forcibly drugging the homeless, and not mistaken. You know, don't give a give them a home, give them happy drugs, so they'll be less dangerous to shoppers. Neither Time or Newsweek that just did a ha 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 moment after the hillbillies and Gore were safely into the White House and stuff. You know, mentioned in a little aside, as though it was no big deal, that Tipper was getting it on with her Secret Service guards during the 92 campaign. Corporate media is like, oh, yeah, the Gulf of Tonkin incident that got us into Vietnam. Yeah, that never happened. You know, to me, that's a pretty big deal. It's funny that the thing with Tipper, now, I first heard about the book, her raising PG kids in an R-rated society or an X-rated society book. X-rated society, yeah, yeah. I heard about that on one of your albums. I recently bought that book for a penny off Amazon. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, though. If you make it all the way through, you're 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 a, a better man than I in some ways, but it's worth taking a lot of notes for the particularly toxic passages. I mean, some of the people who were the most angry at Ralph Nader after the 2000 election claiming he cost Gore the White House were uh, gay rights activists. I had to remind them that the that you know, most of Tipper Gore's cohorts from the P. Parents Music Resource Center were hardcore religious right people. I mean, her main partner was Susan Baker, the wife of old Secretary of State James Baker, and still one of the dangerous gangsters in the world. And she was on the board of directors to focus on, focus on the family at the time, which might explain why a lot of the so-called expert witnesses called at the at the uh, evil music hearings that Al Gore chaired, by the way, were turned out to be uh, extreme right-wing evangelical preachers. The original proposals that they had, which maybe she talks about in the book, I'd be interested to find out where she stands, how much she goes into in that book, was not just a rating for like, they wanted, they wanted special red flags for blasphemy and explicit sex and violence and also a red flag for homosexuality sexual content. You know, she was fronting a blatantly homophobic campaign. They also wanted a red flag and a virtual X rating for any songs that mentioned suicide, even if you were talking against it, which is what Ozzy Osbourne's Suicide Solution song actually was. I remember she tried to get the Jewish Star of David classified as a satanic symbol. That's where I'm like, you're even anti-Semitic. No, that was that wasn't Tipper. That wasn't Tipper. That was some people who ran a deprogramming center for parents whose children were into punk and metal called the Back in Control Center. It was two ex-LAPD cops who started it. And it was their manual that has the Jewish Star of David as a satanic symbol. But Tipper Gore, does, I believe in her book, does endorse the Back in Control Center, and that's where the connection is there. The the problem I had with kind of myself when I bought her book was the have, I I don't know if you remember the cover it's dad covering his little kid's eyes when they're looking at a, por- a porno movie poster I don't know if, what this says about me but I immediately recognized that that poster was from the 1986 movie Amber Aroused Are there any roles that you've wanted that you haven't been able to get that maybe you just lost to another actor or the funding fell through like a role in a movie or a short that you really wanted that you didn't get for some reason? You kind of already know the answer to that question, don't you? I mean, I knew the chances were slim to none, but after they made those first two Tim Burton Batman movies, I was so hoping they'd at least audition me for the Riddler. 
But let's face it, Jim Carrey did a better job than I could have done, and he is a bit more bankable box office name. Are, are there any that you actively pursued? Because you said that usually they pursue you, but are there any that you hear about that are in production and you kind of go, I would really like to have any role, you know, be it a cop or whatever in this. I want a role in this. I usually don't hear about them in time. I mean, that is, again, the sort of thing where if I lived in L.A. and had an agent for these sorts of things, that, you know, they're the ones who follow that sort of thing. I'm kind of born to do cartoon voices, too, but uh, haven't really been able to do much of that either. So, uh, you know, it, it's just all a matter. I don't really want to move to L.A., basically, and I haven't really landed a representative and that frankly I haven't really looked that hard. I mean I'm always doing too many other things at once. Well there's a couple two or three roles that I did get offered and then the movie never got made. And those can be real heartbreaks sometimes. The first one it was a real young guy who thought he had Hollywood connections but I guess he didn't who was making basically what was mostly just a disposable you know, cops versus the drug barons, shoot them up, everybody kills each other movie. But there was this one character named Ben that he wanted me for that was somebody who invented all the new street drugs and tested them on himself first to see what happened. And it was written into the script that there was an aquarium of, like, poisonous sea snakes behind me and other things that the guy was using and, you know, injecting fucking snake venom into his arms up to see what happened, I guess. I don't know. That would have been an interesting one. And then an even more interesting one was when Norman Reedus, yes, that Norman Reedus, approached me about a feature-length version of a film he'd made a short of called The Rub. And um, I think there there was some death and weird stuff going on in there. And a lot of the characters had real strange masks or appearances. He wanted me as kind of a, a Rupert Murdoch, but still more powerful guy. But the character was more based on Richard Nixon in a Rupert Murdoch role. And my assistant was supposed to be this other dude with ram horns growing out of his head and stuff, and they were talking about Willem Dafoe for that. I'm not sure that Dafoe was ever approached because it didn't get that far. And then another person involved in the project kind of ran off with it, and then it died. So that was the end of that, unfortunately. But that would have been a really interesting one, a challenging one, too. It's now hit the graphic novel phase. So I guess I can talk about it without without Hollywood running off of the idea because it's such a good one. It's called the, the, the graphic novel is called Prince of Pieces, and it's about Jesus coming back to Earth as a vengeful, flesh-eating ghoul, you know, out of disgust for what the planet has turned into and everything. And the guy who approached me about it wanted me for Jesus, and I said, no, 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 I want to play the TV evangelist that Jesus tears limb from limb live on his own TV show at the end of the film. Well, they did the graphic novel hoping to attract interest from more people to see if they could get it get it made into a movie. Yeah, I, I, that 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 would that would be, it would be a really hard one because there's ten billion monologues of this guy's true sermons and his in his uh, or whatever and his pitches for money on his show and they were telling me they didn't really want me to improvise those. So um, for the sake of continuity and all, but. We'll see if it ever gets made, but uh, that that was a role I was born to play. Well, when it comes to improvisation versus the script, 
do you have a harder time reading off the script? Because you, you, it seems like you like to just kind of have an outline and then make up the dialogue. That, you don't get a lot of that, though. For, for again, the same reason that you're going to shoot in a film, you know, several different camera angles and close-ups and over-the-shoulder shots, you've got to have the line the same every time from every character, or you can't really cut between them as easily. If you're going to have, you know, a room shot and then both characters and one and the other then go back out again, you'd be, there's a reason they've got somebody on set with a script in their hand watching continuity like a hawk. And even if you say, uh, instead of the, they will catch you. That's their job. I, I mean, obviously, they've figured out a way to make it work in Portlandia and do a lot of improvisation and then uh, do the cuts where they need to pick their best stuff and just go with it. I can't imagine some, you know, gigantic Transformers epic having a lot of improv in it. Yeah, there was, there was another movie I was in, an anti-death penalty film that went out on, I think it went out on one of the cable networks and then went to DVD called Death in Texas. It's about about this guy who's scheduled to be executed for a murder that he basically didn't even really commit. He was sitting in a car when somebody else killed somebody in a botched robbery. And so he gets the death penalty, too, because it's Texas. But he's, he was a star NFL wide receiver. And so for the fictional Boston-Texas team based on the Dallas Cowboys, they let him out of jail because they need him to catch some passes in the Super Bowl. And he drops one at the end or something, so they take him back and kill him. And I was the press secretary. And it was a quickie scene to shoot. Because I was reading a prepared statement of the media anyway, they let me basically read a prepared statement. But then the director didn't yell cut after one of them. So I just kept going and talked about, and then the needle will go into his arm, and then the fluid will slowly tear down. And uh, if that doesn't work, we will fry his ass. Everybody in the room cracked up so fast that may have rendered the scene unusable right there. But no, it didn't get in the final cut. Well, did you ever encounter any kind of, I guess snobbery is not the right word, because I know Henry Rollins and Ice-T have both talked about how when they first started acting, people were like, they're, they're a musician. What are they doing acting? Did you ever encounter any of that? He's a punk singer. Why is he on the movie set? Not on set. I mean, I had to be really humble about that during Terminal City Ricochet because a lot of the actors cast in that film were younger, newer actors who were really trying to catch on and grab any role they could to try and get somewhere. And here I'd walked in out of the blue and taken one of the plum roles of the film because I was Jell of the Opera, basically. And so... Um, you know, I, I, I had to treat treat everybody, well, which you kind of ought to do anyway, right? Um, just treat everybody with most respect and be very supportive of everybody else and uh, whatnot. And I think I was not the only actor in the film who went out bowling with the crew one night. The explosive expert was particularly good at bowling. How have you found that, that people have come to your acting after the fact? Because obviously, Alternative Tentacles... I don't know if you just own the rights or have the distribution rights to The Widower and Terminal City Ricochet. Obviously, that means you're quite proud of these if you're willing to put them out on DVD. Do you find a lot of people discovering you through that kind of method? I would say discovering my music through the acting, I'm not sure anybody ever has. I mean, let's face it, I'm not in that many movies, and for the most part, not in very big roles. 
So uh, not everybody even knows I've done anything like that at all. And uh, I, I, I mean, I did pursue both those movies after the fact because nobody had ever put them out on DVD. Terminal City Ricochet had only shown in two or three cities and then on the USA Network, and then the whole thing fell into litigation with the producer and the financial backers. And uh, and the producer guy, who was my friend from, you know, the Dead Kennedy Show day, you know, he walked away from the whole thing. But then eventually, going to sign paper, you know, indemnify, you basically say, you know, okay, I have the right to license this to you and whatnot. And so uh, out it came. And then Marcus Rogers, who, who directed The Widower, um, he uh, was the one who prepared uh, Terminal City Ricochet for DVD release. Unfortunately, the interview with Peter Breck from way back when was lost, so we weren't able to put that in. One thing I really did like about the DVDs of those is they come with the CD soundtrack as well. That, I think, is a very unique extra, which I enjoyed immensely. Well, there's a gray area now when hardly anybody buys any hard goods, especially if it's digital in nature, because They'd rather file share or our economy so bad that that's the only way they can obtain anything. And each one feeds itself, although now you've got all these one to $500,000 a year tech yuppies running around San Francisco who think it's beneath them to actually pay for music or film or any kind of art at all. And that people and the artists who want to be paid for their work are somehow greedy to be able to download anything just like you turn on the radio to listen to things. Sometimes... It's kind of a toss-up whether to release the project as a music album with a free DVD or a DVD with a free music album. And with Terminal City Ricochet and The Widower, it made more sense to release them as film, although we've still never been able to get them up on Netflix. Any, any help you can provide with that, please do. Oh, God, come on. What's the name? It's The Hipster Game. It was these people, and this was... This was intended for Net and YouTube from the get-go. They made a parody trailer of the trailer to the first Hunger Games film. And apparently it went viral in a lot of circles. So then they made another one called the, of the instead of Hunger Games, it was the Hipster Games. So then they had to make another trailer parody when the second Hunger Games film came out. And they needed a Donald Sutherland. And I actually had a beard at that point briefly. In I went. Other than those, do you have any kind of acting roles coming up or anything you want to pimp out? Uh, not that I know of. I didn't mean there's been some stuff floating around, but I've learned with these, especially after all the back and forth with the rub and prints with pieces and then them not getting made, that never to believe it till it's actually happened. So I want to say thank you very much. And guys, go to Alternative Tentacles and buy Terminal City Ricochet and The Widower. Don't download them. You get a free CD. There you go. The only reason that Peter and Cecil were not in this interview was this was kind of sprung on me. I'd been talking to one of the guys at Alternative Tentacles trying to set this up, and it was set up for later in the following week. And then I, I get a message, hey, Jello's got some free time tonight in like two hours. Are you ready? What am I going to say? No. So that's why Cecil and Peter weren't there, because we had originally planned for them to be, but it was such short short notice that it just didn't happen. Like, I like the I like the Dead Kennedys, and he's a, he's a cool dude, but I just, I really don't feel like I, I know enough about him to really be involved in a, in a discussion with the guy. Like, I would just feel like an ass. Well, Cecil was afraid of saying something stupid in front of him. 
<laughs> I, well, it's not so much saying something stupid in front of him. It's just that I know that if I if I just worded something wrong, he would dissect it and just completely shut me down. And it, <laughs> like, and and I'd be fine with that. Like, I wasn't like afraid because it wasn't so much being afraid of it, but it was just like I know I'm probably going to say something stupid. And he's just going to come at me with that, well, you know, and just completely just make me feel like an asshole. When you have a movie, I mean, like Terminal City Ricochet does not have much of an internet presence even. I mean, you can get it through Alternative Tentacles. You go to AlternativeTentacles.com. The cool thing is you get a soundtrack for free. Charlie, I know you have the DVD that you stole from Alex Jowski. It's got the free CD soundtrack, doesn't it? Uh, It does. And stole is not the correct word. It was not a premeditated effort you to steal. You borrowed it three years it ago and never returned <laughs> it. That's stole. And he still has my copy of uh, my hardcover copy of The Killing Joke, so I don't feel bad about it, no. So you traded? Kind of. Like, without saying anything about it, like either one of us, we, we kind of traded. We could probably trade <laughs> back. The thing with Terminal City Ricochet is it did have some posters made back at the, in the day. Just try to find one an original one online. There was no VHS release. There was, back when I was a VHS bootlegger in the 1990s, there were off-TV bootlegs being traded around of it. So that was the only way you could see it back then. The DVD put out by Alternative Tentacles is about it. I can find barely any reviews online. Do you guys think that this movie needs to be seen more? That this movie should not be the relative obscurity that it is? I, I think that it, it pro- I mean, I, I honestly think that every movie should get out there. Every movie that was made, no matter how crappy, I think it should be available one way or another. Uh, so it's it's kind of a shame that this has fallen you know, to the wayside for whatever reason. I don't know. He's always kind of been a bit of an underground guy. So uh, and he's also always working on like 50 gajillion things. So maybe it's very possible that he just wasn't pursuing getting it out there further. Well, I'm trying to help get it out there further. That's why I'm telling people to go to alternativetentacles.com and buy the movie. Don't pirate it, because this helps the independent operator buy this movie. It totally should be. I I think it's a very quotable movie. Uh, I think it was definitely made to be seen. It's really well written. It's clever. It's funny. It's really smart. And uh, I think it it should. It should be up there with... um, you know, movies like uh, like like Network, like Idiocracy, like RoboCop, all those movies that have the the sort of uh, <laughs> you know dark humor infused with that you know bleak sort of dystopia, the shitty future of corporations ruling everything and no middle class, just lower class and super high upper class. It totally deserves to be in the same ballpark as as movies like that because it's just as good. The characters are just as well written just as clever it's it's a honest i think it's a great movie and it, it should it should be seen by more people and it, it should be definitely promoted more so more people can see it because is clearly meant to be meant to be seen that this movie might actually reach more people as sort of an underground word of mouth thing or do you think just if it showed up on netflix that this would would be the kind of movie that a lot of people would watch because as a quick aside this isn't part of the interview afterwards jello and i were just shooting the shit for about 45 minutes and he mentioned he doesn't even know how to try and get this on netflix so if anybody <laughs> knows how to get this on netflix contact either me or jello and you know maybe we can get terminal city ricochet out there but i think if it remains underground it, it gets to the right people you know what i mean i mean that that's how that's how i i 
got my the copy that I have now. Like that's how I resaw it because uh, I saw it first when I was about eight, but I I hadn't seen it for years until I borrowed it from Jowski. The word borrowed in quotes. He'll get it back eventually. <laughs> well, if he does something really nice, I'll give it back to him. That that's um. the way borrowing <laughs> should work. Yeah. Not even just for me, just for society. Like I'd give it back. Like if if he if he saved everyone from a fire, I'd go and see him in the hospital and say, "You you've earned this back, man." And I I would give it back to him. I don't know. I, I that that's how it got back to me. That's that's how uh that's how you heard of it, just like through word of mouth from the more politically aware to someone else who's more politically aware, rather than everybody watching it and every and almost nobody getting it. Like I. I I don't want to see it suffer that fate, so I'd, I, the bitter old hipster inside of me wishes it would stay underground because the pessimistic hipster outside of me says if it were more popular, f***ing Zack Snyder would probably be remaking it right now. I want everyone to go out and try and see Terminal City Ricochet. Obviously, like I said, you can't get it on Netflix, but you can go to alternativetentacles.com and order it. You help the independent producer, and you get a CD soundtrack for, you know, included in the package for free. I'm saying go and do that, and then when you're done with that, email the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com and let us know if we were just blowing smoke up your ass or if you enjoyed the movie as much as as we did. And I want to thank Jello Biafra again because, like I said, getting an interview with him is not the easiest thing in the world. I, I thought his interview was great. I mean, I never would have suspected that he used to that he would masturbate as Bruce Cottle to get into character. That's right. <laughs> that's commitment to a bit. Cecil, since you have had a weird week, where can people find you having a little bit more freedom and being arguably insightful? <laughs> uh, you can find me being more insightful and all that other stuff at uh, escapistmagazine.com. Or wait, or is it Escapist Mag? Well, you think I'd have this down by now? escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, geekjuicemedia.com, and various other places on the interwebs. And I would also like to recommend, if you've never heard Jello Biafra before, go and track down No More Cocoons. Just listen to him spout off for hours about stuff that happened back in the 80s, but a lot of it is still extremely relevant and makes just as much sense today as it did back then. Peter? Since you you really you're not so much the Bruce Cottle, I think I think you're the guy that gets his testicles cut off. Where could people oh, find thanks. you with with, <laughs> a, with a now higher voice? Uh, you can uh, you can find me nutless on uh, on Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook the Cinemasticist, uh, YouTube the Cinemasticist, and on uh, on 1201beyond.com. Uh, I don't know why my voice isn't high, uh, but hey, I guess I. I guess the whole not having nuts thing is uh, not so bad after all. I don't know. Well, your voice might not be high, but I'm sure Charlie is. Charlie, where can people find you? <laughs> well, you can find me in uh, in Colorado. And uh, just as an aside, I'd like you to know that in preparation for tonight's episode, I masturbated as Jello Biafra. So I hope <laughs> uh, I hope that came through in the episode. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Charlie McMullen on Facebook, Geek Juice Media. And 1201beyond.com on uh, Josh's other show where I do pretty much this, the same thing that I just did. Uh, what the fuck? That's a good one. I get really good and pissed off uh, on that one, so go check that out. And my Jello recommendation is uh, if you only if you only think you you can listen to one song before you decide if you if it's, if there's no other song, Shopping Mall spelled M A U L. It was on Rock Against Bush Volume Two in 2004. 
uh, that's one of my favorite songs in the whole world. The, that song was also on the album he did with DOA. There you go. It, that, that was That's where I heard that one. You can find me, 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. For my Jello Biafra musical recommendation, I got to go back to what I grew up with, the entire album of Frankenchrist. I think that is, without a doubt, without a doubt, the best work he's ever done. I think Frankenchrist, I can't even pick a favorite song off that album. That entire album is perfect. But if you want to get the politics that Cecil was talking about, the song of the, the last song of that album, The Stars and Stripes of Corruption. So you guys have a good night and go and pick up Terminal City Ricochet. Thanks, Jello. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Peter. And I guess thanks, Cecil. Thanks, John Boy.
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.